0: To be honest, I was scared reaching out for help because I was like, this could totally ruin my career.
1: Somebody to have a more proactive approach and that he was coming to me to be that person. They had found him and he committed suicide.
0: I just started screaming. I just felt responsible. Hello, everybody. I am Timothy Lawson, host and founder of the One Too Many Veteran Suicide Podcast and Project. I'm back with another story. I have Rob Novotny on the show, who's going to talk about his friend Dan, who died by suicide. Rob tells us, he he gives us the backstory on how he met Dan, how he became a mentor for him, gets into some of Dan's challenges. We hear about how Rob got the news that his friend had died, and then the struggle that Rob experienced moving forward past that, and how he was able to overcome suicide ideation himself it 's a very powerful story i 'm going to let Rob get to it when you 're done listening here. be sure to go to one too many project that 's o n e the number two many project dot com to listen to other episodes and to see more of what we 're doing. get in contact with me if you 'd like to share if you'd like to share your own story, if you have ideas, you want to collaborate, whatever it may be. Definitely trying to grow this brand again, take it to the next level. So without further ado, here's Rob Novotny. Be sure to stay tuned tomorrow for my momentary reflections.
1: My thought process begins with painting a picture of, you know, exactly what the relationship built into. I think that would help connect real well with not only military members, but with any audience who, who has a relationship with someone who isn't directly in their family, so to say. So the summer of two thousand eight is when our relationship really it took off. Um, we were both huge into sports and both from New York, living in Quantico, Virginia. So that's when you know the Yankees come out and it's the summer, so everyone's you know a little bit happier, so to say. Like you said, you're breaking out of the winter and finally you know things start to bloom and everyone gets a little happier. Um, so my wife and I would go. Go out to you know different bars and and watch the Yankees games and um that's where our relationship built from was these sports and we talk and talk and talk and we also worked together at Weapons Training Battalion in Quantico so we're all the way like for the summer of 2008 it really set everything up I was I turned 21 he came up to meet my whole family for my 21st birthday um and that's pretty much from there, he he turned into a, a brother of mine. Uh, towards the end of 2008, um, my wife and I started going through some troubles, and she said she wanted to take two weeks and, and go back home and reevaluate, you know, everything and spend time with her mother and family. And then I had my buddy Daniel move in with me. So whatever, we're still doing our thing. It's still you know baseball season. Um, so we hang out. We're we're Doing the thing, going to work, coming back home. Two dudes living in an apartment now, so we're, you know, hitting the hitting the, the bottle every night pretty much. Um, when my wife comes back, I kind of stayed in this routine here. Uh, she said it was fine with him staying there, so now we became this, like, little triplet of a, of a group. We do, you know, everything together. It's still nice in Virginia until August, I mean, until uh, October, November. Um. So we had the Marine Corps ball, had a great time uh, moving forward. It's the winter now, and I get orders to leave for Iraq in uh, the middle of 2009. So I like to start my work up in February. Um, so with me leaving soon, we, my wife and I made the conscious decision to, instead of her staying in Quantico where she has no family, move her back home, back up to Long Island. So then again, my buddy moves in after she leaves. Um, this time it's a lot less on the party side. He understands the fact that I'm leaving for Iraq and needs to focus. So this is where he's deployed twice before. And this is my first deployment. And he starts taking on this role of a huge mentor in my life. A uh, big brother, so to say, I didn't have a brother growing up. So he takes this, this role. Um, you know, every time I come home from a field op, I come home and he's like, Hey, what's the deal? How it go this, that, the other thing. Um, and we forged this brotherhood where I could tell him anything no matter how I knew it would disappoint him or something like that. But he was always at the end of the day proud, you know, to hear about these stories. Like, you know, that's a thing. As a young man growing up, you, I think you need this older brother figure if you don't have an older brother to look up to and make proud, you know, aside from the family, which they're always going to tell you they're proud of you. I think you need an outside source. You know, he became this guy who was, Someone I looked up to every, with everything I did, I was like, man, you know, I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my best man, my, my buddy, my brother, Dan, about what I did today. So here we go. It's July of 2009. Um, my send off party went fantastic. Uh, my whole family came down. My wife came down. My friends all joined together. We had a great send off and we leave on July 11th of 2009. My birthday it turns out to be July 12th. So we're stuck in this plane now, going over like Greenwich Mean Time, and I turned twenty-two, and you know all the guys in the plane start kicking my ass. So that's pretty fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can't go anywhere. You can't like get away.
0: You know, no. you're on an airplane. You're stuck. <laughs> yep, you're stuck, and there's no no sympathy for that. No,
1: no, no. So that was fun. Uh, so the whole deployment went great went outstanding um we didn't lose any guys we took minimal contact it was 2009 so it was more of an advisory role uh we're helping train the iraqi police up um doing detainee transition stuff like that uh a little bit of uh escorts and convoy support so it was fun it was a great time um the 13 guys i was with on my team we've you know they all have supported me throughout my whole cause now my whole mission um moving forward so we get back in October 2009, and believe it or not, we get back on the 26th of October, and the Yankees win the World Series not a week later. So I get my wife back, I get my buddy back, I get the Yankees win the World Series. Life is fantastic. Next thing I know, it's Thanksgiving, the two days before Thanksgiving, and my wife says she wants a divorce, so Boom like all right well I knew the roller coaster was about to happen so first thing I do I call up Dan he comes over we figure out you know we take the weekend I don't go home for Thanksgiving I take the weekend and him and I we just talk about everything um it ended up being a snowstorm that weekend anyway so we didn't do anything just talked and talked and talk and it was hockey season now so the Rangers are playing so it was great um not to get my mind off of things, but it was nice to take a break from constantly talking about what I'm going to do next. And he was a guy to challenge you and make make you have these hard conversations with yourself, you know. So that's why I think we had that great friendship because no one else would challenge me. Everyone else would just support, you know. And I think you need that. Like Mike Tyson said, everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. So I needed that punch in the face. And he was always always willing to make me, ha- you know, rock me, so –
0: Right. Okay.
1: Um, next thing I know, I get orders for Japan and I leave in May. So it's now November, end of November. So we'll say around December 1st, I, I get these web orders and I'm pinged to go to Japan. So now I have six months. I have to go do 3 months training up in Lejeune before I go to Japan. So out of these five months that I have – or six months I have left on American soil – I stuck to go through a divorce. I have to move all my things. I have to plan for Japan. I have to do all this crap. And it became overwhelming. And uh, throughout all this time, he had my back. He supported me. He was great through everything. Again, this big brother role. Like, if I couldn't take care of something, he was there to help me. Help me with the legal side of it. Like, told me he'd gone through a divorce before. He helped me, like, put a timeline in place. Like, this is what you should have done by this day, by this day, by that day. So... It was great. It was awesome. So here I am. I leave for Japan, still married, didn't have enough time to finalize divorce. And now I have to figure out all that from overseas. So my first six months there were amazing. Uh, Japan is fantastic. Um, I got a cell phone out there so I can you know, keep in contact with everyone. And this is when Dan started making lifestyle changes. He was a little bit overweight, but he had slipped a disc when he was on deployment. I don't know if it was while he was in Iraq or on a boat. So he was like, I'm going to get back in better shape. Started running on ellipticals, started working in the gym a lot more, and tried to quit smoking. So we're both like, now we're like neck and neck, like progressing with each other. I got promoted to sergeant before he did, and he'd been in longer, so I kind of think he had a kick on his shoulder. So he's trying to match me in, and I became a black belt instructor, and he, you know, he tried to, he's getting up in his martial arts, and it was awesome. We were like making each other better, knowing that in the long run we're making ourselves better to help the junior Marines under us. Because through all this, like we have a wealth of knowledge between the two of, two of us now. Like it's it was amazing. So sure. By the time New Year's Eve comes around, I I'd always made a plan. Him and I had made a pact since uh, 2009. We're gonna do Japan every year or uh, New Year's Eve every year together. Because so I was my I was going out to celebrate New Year's. It was you know. New Year's Eve, I've got my tickets to come home, home now. Um, so, we always said we we're going to do New Year's Eve together. Uh, he was the one who, after my, my wife left, was like, We're still, we still need to do New Year's. Like, this isn't, this is a tradition now. We're not just stopping. Like, next year is going to be a great year. So, that was our thing. Every year, next year is going to be a great year. And we have a track record so far. Like, every year had been a great year that we've known each other. So, All for it. Yeah, my plane tickets to come back home to New York. He drives up. We spend New Year's 2010 into 2011 together. Great time. He's in such great shape. Um, He just got a new car. He's out of debt. It was all, it was, you know, we're both, we're past where we thought we would be. So now I've got this thing.
0: It's a good feeling.
1: We meet, yeah. I mean, it's awesome (laughs) when you set an expectation and then you meet and beat it. So that's now that's how I live my life. I'll set a goal, a realistic goal, and I'll always meet and beat my expectations of myself. And, you know, he instilled that whole thing in me. It's great. So,
0: yeah, that's awesome.
1: We spend New years together. My whole family comes in and sees him and all my friends. By this time, I mean, he'd been up to New York yeah, a dozen times. So everyone knew him. Uh, we ended up getting snowed in my buddy's basement apartment. So, again, like this theme of this snowed in everywhere, it it's just it happened all the time. So now he, he leaves in the morning, um, we dig out of 27 inches of snow and he's on his way up to Dover Plains now and that would eventually be, or essentially be the last time him and I spent time together alive. So it's very nice that the last time I saw him, he was doing so well and it, it it's perfect. So in 2011, didn't end up being the best year ever. Um, this is when everything went downhill for him. With his, um, his slip disc in his back, they were trying to, they, when I say they, the uh, naval medicine and the command he was still with. And they were telling him that he either needed to have surgery to replace the disc and have like a concrete or, well, I don't know, maybe not concrete, a titanium disc put in his back. Or they were going to have to, I mean, eventually medically separate him from the Marine Corps. So, he didn't uh, trust enable naval medicine to do back surgery. Um, there are some harsh stories. Right, yeah, like your back is, you know, you could probably be paralyzed. Either way, I mean, either way, it was it's a lose-lose. You're either going to be paralyzed if you don't get it fixed. You know, it's a bad situation to be in, you're right. Now, he's in this predicament where he has six months to figure this out. So the whole six months he's, you know, he's going through this thing and he's, now he's got, he picked up smoking again and with all this, now it's it's weird, the first time I met his father he's, his father somewhat blamed me for going to Japan and not being there, like, physically with him. We've gotten over that sense, but it's weird to hear that, you know, I, I agree, I, I you know, I there's probably some part of it that if I were still there. He wouldn't have done it, but ultimately it was, you know, his decision and we have to move past that. But,
0: you know, I I
1: always think you could help out in a a little bit longer of an aspect. But if anything, I I think I gave him more days to live than than not. So back to the story. Sorry. Um, Now he's struggling with getting employment outside of the military, which is why I'm doing so much now to help all those active duty members get more training before they leave, and even when they're out, there really aren't services in place for this. So he's struggling with getting a job. He's struggling with his weight again. He's struggling with smoking. Ultimately, um, on July eighth, he ended up sending me a Facebook message, and it's this long message, and he's all this problems and struggles, and he's just like, I'm tired, man. I'm tired. I. At that point I knew like something was up and I was like, all right, well, Hey bud, like in four days is my birthday. Um, I can't come home like right away. So do me something, go to my, you know, go spend time, go up to New York and, and celebrate my birthday with my mom and pop. He's like, yeah, sure thing. And I'm like, dude, October is three months away. So like you can make the three months, make it last. You got this dude. Like, You'll be out, you'll be back home in New York, you know, you still have two years to go to school. Like, there were options for them, and we'd spoken about this and always having a plan to move forward. Because both of us in our lives had had our whole lives drop. You know, the one person you want to spend the rest of your life with says they don't anymore. You got to start from scratch. I'm like, dude, we've done this before. You can do this again. Like, you have that pride of being a Marine and having, you know, junior Marines look up to you and, They become your friends, and you forge that family, and then you're done. I wish you would be around to see the veteran community is, you know, it's not just Marines. Now you have Marines, soldiers, sailors, airmen, coasties. You've got the whole DOD is now your family. Like, it's not to say it's a better feeling. Nothing's a better feeling than being a Marine, but it's a great feeling. You still have that camaraderie family. So, event I got this uh, message. It was my birthday, so July twelfth again. I I don't know how the military just knew to send me different places on my birthday. Iraq. Now I'm in Hawaii in 2011. I wake up right and early. Um, I was part of the Command General Inspection Team, so I'm out there doing an inspection, and I've got you know brief colonels and all majors and all in a high capacity role here. And I get these messages, happy birthday, happy birthday, and three stick out. One was from a buddy of mine, Troy, who was actually my team leader in Iraq, also was friends with Daniel. And he said, hey buddy, I know it's your birthday, but you need to call me. I'm like, all right, that's weird. Another message right below that was um, a sergeant that was above Daniel and I. We were, we we're all, you know, in the St. Pierre group. She said the same thing. I hope you haven't heard the news yet. You need to call me as soon as you can. And I was in Hawaii, so they sent me the, you know, the the, the, the numbers you can directly link from Hawaii to Quantico, and without being long distance. So I call him up, and this is when I'm I'm still scrolling through Facebook, and, and i I'm, I'm see now I see his message, and it says you're the best friend I've ever had, and that's that. And I'm like, oh, oh my heart heart sunk and I'm on the phone at the same time and both hit me at once and you go through the initial like stages of depression and shock and like I knew it was true I'd just spoken to him four days prior and I'm like I know it you know like you have that feeling that gut feeling that's like you don't want to believe it but it's true
0: your your mind starts patching together all the information that you have and yeah
1: right and you, you know my whole thing is he's always told me, like, move forward. That's all you can do. Like, remember and have memories, but always need to move forward. So it's the first thing I did. I set him on the phone, I'm, and I was like, look, I just – I'm in Hawaii. Like, now I've just got him watching over me, and I just want to take the, the high road in the best way possible. And I knew I was still in shock, and I understand how the mind works. I'm like, I'm, I just need to let it take its course. So I hang up the phone, and I've got, it, I've got three more days in Hawaii. And on the fifteenth, we're out briefing and taking off and going back to Japan. So I was the driver too, and I had my my boss in the car and a junior marine we took with us. No talking going on, and I'm like, I don't know if you could tell if my personality through this already, but I'm in like a, I'm out there. I'm I'm very emotional. I put my my heart on my sleeve. I'm energetic. I'm the you know everyone looks at me for, hey, what are we doing this weekend? I don't know. Let's see what Rob's doing and. I'm that, you know, I'm that, like, kind of sounds like a jerk saying this, but I'm like the the glue for all my friends that come together and uprise and, like, happy-go-lucky, and I don't know. I hope I paint a picture of myself that's like that, and (laughs) so it's weird when I don't have anything to say. That's when people are, like, they start to ask questions like, dude, what's going on, man? So I'm in this car, I'm just robotic. This step, This needs to be done. You do that. Look at the docs, what's going on over here? And it was weird, because I'm an empathetic guy. I like to get to know people, and I turned that whole mindset off. I was just a sergeant of Marines. I was doing my job. I was there. That's it. I was advising and instructing. So finally, in the car ride back, the day's over now. We have one more day of inspecting and one more day to outbrief. I just couldn't hold it in anymore, so I turned my gun. I was like, hey, guns. My best friend killed himself today like that's how I said it and it took everyone by surprise and no one that's it no one brought it up again I was like you know a little a little bit of relief I don't know if they said anything back actually they turned everything off again and just went back and then so now we're on the 13th so the 14th is now our last day of inspecting um we usually go out afterwards on our last day and you know, to, to the inspectors all go out and have, you know, a little send-off and bring one of their favorite or one of the people that did really well and we all go out, we have a few drinks, um, and then wrap up. So now we're on the night of the 14th. Um, it turned out being the junior Marine we brought's 21st birthday. So we're like, all right, now we have to take taxis and stuff. So we're going to make them drive. But like, you can drink whatever, come out, have a few beers. A few beers turns into a few more and a few more. Everyone's like, oh, it was your birthday the other day. Here's a beer, blah, blah, blah. And so there it comes, you know, uh, with alcohol, the emotions flow. Yeah. Both together all the way back until the hotel room, and I get on the phone, I call my mom, and I just, I don't think I spoke but three words. And she already knew, like everyone knew, and I just cried and cried and cried and cried, I cried for like an hour and a half, just cried. And now she's on the other side of the phone crying like it's my mother. I love her to death. I'm a huge mama's boy. So now she's <laughs> crying. So now I'm crying some more because I made my mom cry. And it's just this whole big thing. And the whole thing I'm like, God damn it, Daniel, why'd you have to make my mother cry? Like <laughs> So finally right. the outpour of emotion came after holding it for, you know, twenty four to thirty six hours and from there I thought I'd be fine thought I'd be great. We're going back to Japan. Japan's like where my life is now. I'm not in some hotel room. I have my things. I have everything. And, you know, I have, it's just a a better routine for me in Japan, I thought. And life was going so well. I'd just gotten my black belt. So it's great. Everything was going swell in Japan. So I'm back there. I'm like, you know what? Maybe Japan makes everything better. Boom. So I'm back in Japan. And for a month, it was great. Um, we're pushing into early September now, and we have this big move coming up. All the barracks marines are moving from one barracks to another for renovation and stuff like that. So we're having, you know, essentially a going-away party for our barracks. And here it comes again. Here comes the booze. So it's September 11th in 2011, 10-year anniversary of, of the, the heinous acts that were taken out on this country. So we're doing a little memorial. We're remembering what happened. And Japan is 13 hours ahead. So at 9 p.m. is 8 a.m. And that's when they start all the ceremonies in New York and, and, you know, the Pentagon and in Pennsylvania for the the planes that went down. So we start watching these ceremonies, packing up our gear. And I hadn't packed a thing because I was going to be one of the last ones to move. Um. So all my things were still out. Yeah, I packed up some stuff, but, you know, I was a sergeant at this time, so I was hoping they would say, hey, senior sergeants, you can stay. Like, just a hopeful, uh, you know, since I hadn't packed, they would say, like, hey, a certain few of you can stay. And I'd plead my case, like, oh, you know, I haven't packed much because I was supervising, but really I was just hoping I could stay, which didn't end up happening. But um, I got back to my room, and everyone else is, you know – to the winds now, we have to wake up early to um to move the barracks. So I have one of my going away presents from Weapons Training Battalion, where Dan and I were together, was a K-bar that he got engraved that said our famous saying of Get Bent. So it was one of the funny things we would say to people would uh, like ask us something simple like hey when you're out can you pick up some trash bags we, you know get bent like <laughs> it wasn't to be mean it was like yeah well, of course we'll do it but it was instead of all right good to go or I, I staff sergeant it was just all right get bent and hang up and it was like <laughs> you know, one, of the, yeah, one of the things that we do to keep morale high so to say <laughs> so here i do I, like i have this k-bar and all these you know the thoughts come to mind like you know If he did it, I can too, like, I miss him and all these feelings come over me and it was, you know, I was right there, you know, like I could flash back and see this, like it was in my hand, I was ready to do this and then I was like, you know, I'm just going to reach out to one person and if one person comes, then I, you know, obviously I'm not supposed to do this. So I reached out to someone and no answer and I was like, you know what, I'm going to try one more friend. And then, thank God, um my friend Jake answered the phone and came down, and we decided that, hey, I need to go to the hospital. Like, I, this isn't healthy anymore. From, you know, trying to go down to medical and, and seek help, it took you know, this huge act for me to actually get help. So I've, I've told all my friends now, like, reach out to your buddies all the time, you know, who knows what they're going through and then at, you could be just one friend they have in case something does evolve. It's just always, you should always reach out to one more friend. Like even during the weekend, you know, you're out with your buddies having some drinks, like give one random guy, one random buddy a shout, you know, it could change their day. So from there I spent four days in the hospital, um, getting all evaluation and, um, they did tests and, and they wanted to keep me and put me on medicine, but I kept telling like I'm twenty. At this point, I was 23 years old. 20, I was 24. So, 24 years old. I don't need to be on a regiment of pills. I need to speak to someone on like a regimented weekly basis. Like I need that, and all they want to do is antidepressant pills, and so. I ended up checking myself out of the hospital and they eventually set me up with, with a therapist, which was awesome. I think it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Cause I need, I know that there was something up there that needed to be spoken about, but I didn't know the questions to ask to get these feelings out. So that's why they're trained professionals, I guess. And you know, they make the big bucks. Uh, but that getting that help was definitely the best thing that could have happened. um, so after that, my buddy uh, that I had gone to Iraq with, when we got back from Iraq, we, we got into uh, sports together and all this, became one of my good close friends. His name is also Dan. So I've like collected these Daniels in my life, so to say. It's pretty cool. <laughs> um, so h- him and I, in 2009 and 2010, were really close with our friend Dan that, that chose to end his life. So, if he got there, he got to Japan on September 15th, and I got out of the hospital on the 15th. So, it was like this great things happened at once, I guess. And, you know, I've never turned to suicide since then, because now I have this huge support system and because everyone knows what happened. I'm not shy about it, you know. It's a little embarrassing to bring up, like, yes, I've tried to take my own life, but... I think being able to speak about it is better than hiding it. So I always tell my friends, like, if I don't tell stories, that's when you should be afraid. You know? Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I love that you're bringing up the the power of being able to be honest about it yeah. and letting people know, yeah, this is what's happened in my life. It doesn't change who I am as a person, or it doesn't change the person that you that you know who I am, but it's something that I've experienced, and it's important for other people to know that.
1: Yep. Very. It's just, like, I mean, people make mistakes. It's one of those things where, you know, oh, instead of, I don't have a DWI, but I know plenty of great people that do. So it's just something in my life sure. that happened. And, yeah, not saying it's good or bad, but it happened. So you got right. to move forward. Um, yeah, so back moving, like moving forward, I... After the the suicidal ideation and, and the treatment, I started doing things to better myself. Um, no one ordered me to go do like an alcohol class. Like, okay, I was drinking when, I, when this happened. Maybe there's something there. So I took a preventive maintenance alcohol class for a week. Just learned what the effects of alcohol was, what responsible drinking was. And from there, I've, you know, helped tell my buddies this, like... So 2012 was me like rebuilding myself Um, because of me so, I was so proactive now. I wasn't reactive. I got to do certain things for junior Marines. Um, In May of 2012, I got to take a group of, a platoon, so you know, 40 some odd Marines up to Mount Fuji and we got to hike and and do training operations on Mount Fuji. That's awesome. So it was really rewarding. And they, we had like the physical training and my tie in all the time was mental preparation and emotional preparation and family preparation. Not, you don't, you're not the only one leaving, like you're, you're leaving your family. So they're going away as well. So there's, a movie, Act of Valor, which is um, a SEAL team, has this mission. And before they all leave, the chief takes all the guys, like the whole team, and he tells them, you know, for the next two weeks, we're not training. You need to get everything squared away at home. Tell your family you love them. You know, do do it right. Like emotionally deploy as well. And yeah. they wanted me to do like the the step, the staff and and officers wanted me to do a tie with this movie and they wanted it to be on tactics. So I was like, all right, I'll give you tactics, man. Like I gave them an emotional tactic. And afterwards I didn't like brief them on what it was going to do. They just trusted me. And afterwards they were like taken back on, I guess I let my emotions get to me because I got divorced after my deployment. So I let all my emotions into this and when I do, when I speak to people, I like, th- for this, I have like a written checklist I want of things I wanted to say, but usually I just get up in front of people and just black out speak. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I remember what I say, and they're like, it was emotionally moving. So, pretty neat. So,
0: if, yeah, absolutely.
1: Instead of going into, you know, physical tactics, and this is how they, you know, did you notice how they stacked up on a door and entered a, a hallway, or... No, it was all the first 20 minutes of the movie was did you guys notice how their families are part of the unit and their families are together in
0: unity and it was really weird and I Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> that's it. It was cool. That's great, man. Yeah. I like uh you know you mentioned that you you started to get be proactive which is, you know, that was music to my ears because that's the that's the heart of my message with uh with this program and with a lot of like my TED talk and Uh, With a lot of the other things that I've got to do on suicide and veteran suicide and emotional health and everything is, you know, if we can start taking a more proactive approach, both personally and inside our community to to help each other, then there's going to be less need to see like there's gonna be less signs to see, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, we have a very reactive culture when it comes to emotional health and suicide specifically, in that we wait to see the signs before we start intervening. Uh, But if we find ways to be proactive in each other's life, then, you know, we may have we, you know, could have the privilege of never seeing those signs.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that's why every weekend, like the first week of the month, I make sure that I reach out to every single one of my friends. And then every weekend I make sure I reach out to a random person just, you know, just to say, hey, what's up? Like long time, no chat. Like, how have you been?
0: A random person that you're familiar with, right?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Like, oh yeah. You know, like, for cool some thing. reason, I thought I saw you just at home, just hitting numbers on the phone. See <laughs> who? It is today. Hey, hey. <laughs> totally, yeah. Just, hello. Yeah. Hey, my name is Rob. Just want to see how you doing. Want to see how you doing? Are you selling something, Rob? No, just <laughs> smile. <laughs> I'm selling smiles today.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: No. <laughs> Man, that'd be. I'd make for a great, uh, like t- like TV series. Like, like that's a bunch of short. Uh, so you're almost like cranky anchors, only yeah. only for emotional health. Like yeah. Rob's here to help you out.
1: The, the sad thing is, people would definitely hang up on you.
0: What's funny though is <laughs> is, is it, sure, plenty of people would be like, "This is stupid or a scam." They they, they you know, of course, we're believe we believe that any phone phone call that we weren't expecting is is a scam, right? Right. And so, but I bet you you'd be sooner or later, probably one out of ten. You'd, be, you'd get someone who's like, you know, Rob, I'm going through some shit today. Yeah. Like, I, I needed this phone call. Let's talk about this. Yeah. When
1: I've been to, um, like, motivational speaking of people that have, like, after suicide and, and their good stories afterwards. And one guy, this is why, I do like, the one man said he was on the bus to, to go to the Golden Gate Bridge and jump off. And he said, if one person on this bus says hello to me. You know, like something small like that's what changed my mindset of like friendship. Like maybe I don't need to be yeah. friends with everyone, but I'd like to say at least hi to everyone.
0: Yeah, okay. I mean it's it's um you know, it's important and it not only not only does it say possibly save their life, but I think I think we ignore the benefits it has for ourselves too. Being able to I mean what was that? I read something the other day? Um, and so I read a lot of articles. I can never remember which one's the reference. <laughs> but I read something that said that loneliness can actually start uh, after a certain period of time. I want to say it was like three months. Um, can actually start doing more damage uh, to your to your mind and body uh, than uh, smoking does. Really. Yeah, um, I want to say it was three months, maybe it was six, I mean, I, I know it was less than a year, it, it took me by surprise about how, uh, how quickly it started becoming, uh, but it, it actually, you know, it puts your body in, a, it puts your entire body in a state of depression, um, and of course loneliness, um, you know, that's, that's specifically talking about a lack of companionship and a lack of physical affection. Um, so you not, you don't have people around you talking to you and you don't have anybody like touching. There's no hugs, there's no handshakes, stuff like that. And this goes all the way. I mean, we're getting deep here, but this goes all the way back to, um, to research that they've done on babies to where if you have a baby and you put it in a crib and you take care of it, like you feed it, you, uh, clean up after it, you do everything you need to do to take care of a baby. But if you don't like touch it and hold it, it would die because the, the touch to the skin, you know, wakes up there. Uh, and this is getting a little too scientific for me. So anybody listening, forgive me if I'm butchering the explanation here. <laughs> um, but the, the point is like the body needs touch to wake up the, the nerve endings and stuff like that. When you're growing up, when you're, when you're an infant and, you know, then fast forward to when you're 20, 30, 40 years old, you know, even though you know, your, your body has been awakened and everything, it still like desires that touch. And there's actually a, physical uh there's a uh the lack of physical touch actually does something to your body and it helps contribute to that loneliness wow yeah there's um i don't know have you seen the show scrubs yeah yeah so like there's there's an episode where they make fun of how lonely jd is and someone just shoulder bumps him and he like stops to cherish the moment (laughs) he's like "Mm," like and uh you know and I think, and, and that's, that is as funny as that was, I mean, that's, that's almost how drastic it can get, like people, and when they don't have physical touch, like your body, um, like we've actually we've talked about this when it comes to deployment, we'll pull this back to the veteran space, um, I had Ron Garner on the show, and we talked about how when you're on deployment, you don't touch people, not because you, because you don't want to, but you just don't, you know, like you, you, you not there's not really physical interaction with anybody. And then you get home and everybody wants to hug you and shake your hand and stuff like that. And how the body actually, like, you feel, um, even though you know the touch is about to happen, the body still feels more exaggerated feelings because it's been so long since they've had touch.
1: Pretty neat.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And and all this goes, you know, and again, all of this um, going to your point uh, on being proactive, talking to people, you know, putting yourself out there for the benefit of other people, whether or not they need it. But, you know, just in case, you know, maybe this is the one that needs it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's the reason why I try to offer my hand uh, as often as I can to shake people's hands It's why I hug all of my friends. Like when I see a friend that I haven't seen in a long time, I try to I try to give them a hug. Okay. And because I know the benefits that it's giving both me and them, whether or not we whether or not we acknowledge it.
1: Yeah, I'm a hugger.
0: <laughs> me too, Rob. We're, we're, if we ever be in person, we're getting a good hug in. Yeah,
1: I'm actually. Yeah. I shoot down to DC quite a bit, so.
0: Yeah, well, wonderful. I uh, I look forward to that hug. Yeah, definitely. It's gonna be a hell of a awesome. hug. That's what I'm tell you. That's gonna, it's gonna be a hell of a hug. Yeah. So tell me now that you've gone through this, you know, it's a very, you know, it's a very powerful story. This is one that, um, you know, I'd have to go back to the archives to see if we've had one similar, but. Um, I know we haven 't had many shows where the per- that someone comes on talking about someone else 's suicide and then admits to their own ideations um, a lot of you know, it 's it's, it's either their personal experience and then that 's it or they talk about someone else 's experience and they sort of talk about it from a distance. but um, I think this is one of the few if possibly the only one where we 've had where someone talks about this is what happened to a friend of mine, and then I experienced it later down the line. Now that you've now, you've now that you've experienced both things, losing a friend to suicide and then experiencing it for yourself, how has that changed your perception on suicide behavior? Like, when how has that changed your awareness of it around you, and has it changed your uh, proactiveness on it?
1: My awareness, I guess, um, it's definitely. Um, I guess. I'm not as, you know, I like I said, like you said, the signs, you know, there, there are signs, but some people rationalize it and then there are no signs, you know? Like, people could just rationalize, like, okay, this is the choice I'm going to make. I don't want people to know, so I'm going to avoid any of the signs that come with it. Like, they put on a facade, which is a scarier part. So awareness, I guess, is, is getting more and more difficult if even like our advancements in studies are showing, like you know, there are ways to combat it, and it's like mental health is getting better and better as the time goes on. There's, you know, we're not doing lobotomies anymore, and like we actually have therapy. But I think people now are combating that side. You know, they know that there's therapy, and they know that there's ways out. So it's it's just like you know, any hacker. It's is what I kind of related to. They put up a firewall, well, they're gonna bypass that firewall, so I think it's getting more and more difficult to notice the signs of suicide to notice to to be aware of suicide um that's why i that's why like I said, I just reach out to everybody
0: <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, and i I like you know that's a really I hadn't even thought about this, and now you're gonna make me put a lot of thought into this because you know, what do you do when you don't want someone to be worried about something? Well, you look at the signals that causes them to be worried and you avoid them. Right. You know, we do it naturally with, you know, when with our significant others, like, I don't want them to know that I'm angry. So I know, I know what I do that makes them ask why I'm angry. So I'm not going to do those things. So that way they don't get tipped off. Right. And someone who is, Slowly going through that su- suicide suicidal ideation has he has the opportunity to to realize that and then like you said put on that facade and then there's a chance that the the signs just don't surface because they're actually suppressing them correct and and they're avoiding them on purpose and I hadn't really thought about that and I'm gonna put I mean my brain's gonna go nuts later trying to process all of this because there's a whole other issue now right and like yeah. we we just now got to a point where we can where we have a list of signs that we are confident are consistent with suicidal behavior and now now we have to consider well maybe maybe these aren't even now now maybe these signs aren't even going to come through what do you, what could you possibly look for without um you know and i've mentioned this many times on the on the program it's you never want to be that person who says hey are you thinking about hurting yourself and being wrong because that's implying to the other person, the way you're behaving makes me think that that may be the case. And it really, it it, um, it makes for a really uncomfortable dynamic between you and that other person. And so, you know, what, what signs do you then go off of? What behavior do you go off of? And then what question do you ask without implying that the way that they're behaving is making you think that that's the case? It's such... I mean, this is so difficult to wrap mm-hmm. our heads around. I don't, uh, I don't expect anybody who is listening to the program or that has experienced suicidal behavior on their own, or has witnessed or been a bystander while someone else is, has taken their own life, to ever get it. You know, like I've been doing, I've been doing this for a little over a year, and I still just sort of have an idea of what we may be able to do to slow down the rate of suicide. Yeah. I, you know, I recognize that there is, there's no. Uh, there's no foolproof plan that can just cut a huge chunk of, of suicides out of the equation.
1: Right. There's no. In every case, is different as well. So, yeah. like you said, there's no cookie cutter approach to this.
0: Yeah. So, do you know um, what was? <clears throat> do you know what the unit's response to Dan's suicide was? The
1: unit. Um, They did a whole investigation, um, which I, has been sealed. I don't, you know, there were, you know, people got relieved in their jobs. They got, um, not, they didn't get fired, but they got reassigned. Yeah. Um, they, there was no fault to the department of defense, United States Marine Corps. There was no, no at fault. Um, there was, there was just zero response afterwards. No, nothing changed. The investigation went through. It was just like, okay, they did the checks in the boxes, um, but there was really no response. Yeah. So no one went up to his funeral. It took, because during the investigation, it took, you know, a week and a half, two weeks, for the Marine Corps to transport his body back home. So, there, I mean...
0: Yeah, there was nothing. They did nothing special. Right. Okay. Um, I think we've covered a lot here. I I don't know if I have any any real other questions about your about your story for as far as. Um, opening up more, uh, more of it, and, and learning from it. Is there anything else? I know you had a checklist of things you wanted to talk about, mm-hmm. um, and I know that I'll, whenever a guest comes, they always have sort of that idea of like what message they truly want to get across. Is there anything else that you want to make sure the audience knows that we haven't maybe touched on yet here today?
1: Yeah, just there's one last thing that I just did recently. Um, I just did a hike from where we met. To his grave, so I want to kind of bring that up. Yeah, it was. I needed it for closure for myself. Um, His mother definitely needed it. His father loved it. Like his whole community loved it. Um, On May third of two thousand fifteen, so just you know, just over a month ago, I went down to Quantico, Virginia, and went to the same rifle range where we met, and I started. I put on my pack and had my tent and camped in the woods. And from there I I did like a motivational and historical hike through America's history. I went to Washington, D.C. and got to see some amazing things there inside the Capitol building. Um, I went to see the memorial at the Navy Yard where uh, there was that terrorist action. Sure. I got to, my best friend, got to redesign that entire building. So I got, like, he showed me exactly where it happened, like, what went, it was, it was sobering to see what he did to change these people's lives. So that was amazing. From there I went up to Annapolis. So I got to see some, uh, some midshipmen walk around Annapolis, take some pictures. They have their nice little Hall of Fame they have, um, Walked up north into Baltimore, got to see Fort McHenry. I went up into, um, Philadelphia and it was, it's just amazing. And all the way up, you know, I stopped in at Manhattan. I got to see the nine 11 Memorial and then I got to his grave and there was a, before we got to his grave, there was a parade. I got there on Memorial day, which was my goal. And if you, you ever tried to plan anything over a 21 or 23 day period, everything went to plan. Like nothing went wrong. There was no day where it rained and I couldn't hike. There was no day where my feet hurt too bad I couldn't hike. So it was so weird how everything went according to plan. I got there. My goal was to get there by noon on Memorial Day. And we got there because extra people wanted to hike with me the last couple of miles after the parade. We got there like 1245, uh, 45 minutes off from my, you know, (laughs) long journey. everything went right.
0: That's great. So
1: that's why I'm moving forward. Everything, like every two or three months, I'm trying to do something that relates to veterans and the public to try and, you know, bridge the gap. Because not only veterans aren't the only ones taking their lives at the end. I, I would, I want, you know, a whole day where no one takes their life. And that's just the start.
0: So so you you hiked you were on foot that entire way. Yeah,
1: 430 miles.
0: Holy cow! Yeah. It, what, what was the most ground you covered in one day?
1: 27.4, 27.2 miles, somewhere in there.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. I applaud you, good sir. That's that's <laughs> incredible.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, it was the perfect amount of time too. When I got to his grave, obviously with the emotions that overcame, I dropped like a rock. Um, but. I don't think the next morning I could have woken up and hiked another mile.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: So it was, someone is looking out for me. Like from, I didn't, I got one blister the entire hike. And if any, even a runner knows, like that's impressive. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. What did, I mean, did you just have a pack with the essentials or or what? Yeah, I
1: had two changes of clothes. I had my tent, sleeping system, um... That's pretty much it. Food for the day. Water.
0: Yeah. That's great, man.
1: It was, yeah. So that's like this whole, I've started so, this whole, like that. I have a website on Facebook. It's Vets Lives Matter. And I posted everything there. And it's growing daily, which, you know, the more people that go there, the stronger the reach, the more I can do. So, yeah. Vets
0: know. Lives Matter on Facebook. Yep. Wonderful. Everybody should go check that out. If you've been inspired uh, by Rob's story here, definitely uh, check that out. Rob, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. We had some Skype issues in our first session, but the second session has gone seamlessly. Um, Thanks again, man, for for being willing to, to step up and share your story. I know every time a story gets released, I get at least one message of someone uh, saying that they appreciated it or they didn't realize other people thought this way or they thought they were, they were alone, stuff like that, so these these stories really are making an impact
1: yeah, like I said at the beginning, thanks for having this platform for people to to share their stories. I think it, it helps the grieving process, the healing process, and hopefully we can you know change the world in one little way.